Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. This my first podcast called Let's Do Lunch, appropriately so. My name is Jenny Tishi, also known as the Lunchbox Doctor. I've been in the world of food and nutrition for nearly 20 years now, so hopefully that will give me the uh, knowledge, authority, experience, etc. to talk on this subject. But I'm going to be inviting a series of guests into the studio to talk about a variety of different food and nutrition related subjects. And I'm kicking off this week with a good friend of mine, uh, also by the name of Jen. So when we're together, we have to go by Jen and Jenny, don't we, Jen? We do. (laughs) Just to make it clear. (laughs) So Jen Roach runs Fearless in the Kitchen. And Jen and I met, well, do you want to introduce how we met all those years ago? Do you remember? Do I remember? I do. (laughs) It was at a networking event in Marlow. And I waltzed up to Jenny and I said, Jenny, I just want to tell you, I'm never going to write a book. So we're not in competition with each other. And we just went from there. We did. And uh, do you know what? It's one of those funny things. I was having a conversation with a, a fellow nutritionist this morning and talking about the fact that we're not in competition even if we do something vaguely similar we're actually here to kind of well enrich I believe enrich people's lives um and that's the kind of ethos behind this podcast as well yes and you are now on your fifth sixth book which uh, yeah my fifth book yep fifth so uh book. yeah I should should say that I, I write cookery books so um having decided to leave the world of corporate back in 2003 um Having had a baby as well, I decided it was a good idea to start writing books. And so here I am with my fifth recipe book. Um, But today we're going to be talking about the subject of field to fork. It's maybe a term that you've heard of. Maybe it's a term you haven't heard of. But let me just bring you up to speed if you're not familiar. I mean, hopefully it's obvious. But essentially what we mean is it's, it's a phrase that's used to refer to the various processes and the, the, the changes that you get from the field, if you like, from the agricultural processes right through to consumption. So when we see the food on our plate, so from growing or farming right through to the food that we eat every day. And increasingly, people are aware that where our food comes from plays a huge role in how good it is for us, so how nutritional it is for us, Um, also perhaps how much enjoyment we can get from it, Um, and also, therefore, you know, how much better it tastes. And so the reason I brought Jen here um, is because, Jen, you have the most wonderful ethos around food. You run your own cookery school in Berkshire, which has been mainly moved online hasn't it more recently because of the pandemic Um, but you also are a very keen gardener would you like to tell us a little bit more about your how you got to where you got to do what you do now oh thank you Jenny well I, I like a lot of people had a corporate career and I used to go to cooking schools to relax and take a week off and go to Italy or Greece or parts of the UK and I'd spend a week just cooking and eating and drinking of course. Wonderful. And um, I I observed how people ran these cooking schools and I when I took semi-retirement I decided why don't I do something similar because I have 
four acres in Berkshire with a veg garden and an orchard. I know I'm very privileged. And um, I just decided that to bring people there and teach them how to eat healthy food that they can see growing, my little field, my little paddock maybe, (laughs) to the plate, it was a really important thing to do and also to observe what's seasonal and just to see how you can use courgettes 59 different ways and make them (laughs) taste amazing. (laughs) And that's the important thing, isn't it, that when you are connected to to what's growing where, you have a really good understanding of of what's seasonal. And I think that from a... uh, Certainly that's a change I've seen. I mean, I grew up in the UK and um, when I was growing up, there was seasonality, even if you did shop mainly at the supermarket. Although I was very lucky that where I lived, I grew up in St Albans, there was a a market every Wednesday and every Saturday. And on that market, there were a lot of um, fruit and vegetable stalls. So you could see what was in season there. It was only as I got older, I started to question why certain ingredients were in the supermarkets when I didn't think they should be but I didn't really have a clear knowledge what about your uh, growing up Jen whereabouts <laughs> did you grow up and what is your experience of the food and seasons <laughs> where well, you come from <laughs> I'm in danger of sounding very old now but I grew <laughs> up in Melbourne Australia in the 50s so we didn't actually get supermarkets until the 60s wow so okay it was definitely go to the butcher go to the grocer or go to the market and which my mother did and my mother was a little bit ahead of her time she would go every week to the Victoria market in the middle of uh, Melbourne's central and cook uh, sorry buy for the week and then come home and cook seasonally and we didn't have all of those incredible ingredients you have now so it was pretty basic like a lot of Brits it was very you know we had a, a background of British immigrants so we ate a lot of lamb chops and peas and potatoes and mashed potatoes particularly and sausages and things like that chicken was quite unusual because it was not commercially farmed the way it is now so that was a very special occasion and so we grew up eating seasonally seasonally and didn't really know any different in those days so what typically what vegetables would you have had by which season uh, would the seasons reflect the seasons here more of a temperate climate uh, Melbourne is very like the climate here, actually. Sydney is more subtropical. Um, so, you know, in the winter you'd eat a lot of cabbage and potatoes and things like that, carrots. Um, in the summer you get the tomatoes and things like that. So they actually have a lot hotter summer than here. Mm. It can get up to 40 degrees for a week. Oh. Uh, but the winter's similar. Mm. You know, it rarely gets below zero but hovers around the one, two, three at night sort of thing. And there's quite a movement, isn't there, in Australia for towards healthy eating, uh, an explosion of people posting wonderful pictures. And we've had a little bit of a joke about it as two people that post hopefully wonderful pictures, <laughs> yours perhaps more wonderful than mine, on Instagram. But of people with things like avocado, which isn't something that would grow in a temperate climate. So do you think now, I mean, you must have connections still in Melbourne. Do you think there's a pressure on people to eat out of season to sort of follow eating trends? Um I think one of the things you're talking about there really is the fact that Australia is so enormous. They can grow those things, but they were not eaten in my day when I was young. Yes, now, and I can remember taking an avocado to work one day and everyone thinking I was extremely weird around the sort of 70s and 80s. But they can grow a lot of tropical fruits in Queensland and, yes, they transport it down to the southern states, but it's not like it's coming from Costa Rica or somewhere like that or Peru, which we do have here in Europe. That's really interesting, isn't it? So you think actually there probably has been a sway towards people eating not necessarily local produce, 
because of what's happening online at the moment. Yeah, I think that um, we were exposed to a lot more variety earlier in my in our lives mm-hmm. than perhaps here. And I remember when I, I came here 15 years ago and a lot of the things I was used to in, in Australia I couldn't get here. So I went to the local supermarket looking for fennel and they didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> and it wasn't your accent. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I enunciated as clearly as I could. Um, no, there was just a lot of things that um, I think – we're slower to come here because we were closer to Asia, so we're exposed to a lot more spicy food and chilies and Thai food and Vietnamese food. We had Vietnamese immigrants come quite early in the day. So I think we we had a broader range of choices and it became very Australianised with the way we put it together and it made it really interesting. And, Jenny, I have to confess, and please, everyone listening, close your ears, when when it was first mooted that I was going to move here with my husband for work, I said, oh, my God, but they've got no food over there. It's just <laughs> chips and sausages and, and pies. Fried, <laughs> fried food. What am I going to do? And and I will say that, honestly, it has not been like that. And in, in the years I've been here, the food scene here, has grown incredibly and I would say it's possibly exceeds what you get back in Australia. The images in Oz, yes, it's all very ahead of its time and everything but I think now here in the UK, especially London and the, this part of the world, the food is fabulous, the produce is amazing and I think the Brits have made a real effort to get seasonal and healthy and wonderful food grown in the UK and not rely on overseas produce yeah, as yeah. much. I was actually going to ask about the, the cultural influence. I mean, Melbourne, I've lived in Sydney, I've not lived in Melbourne, but to me it was like the cultural capital. It was the place where it was almost like... So the Sydney outsiders would say. Yeah, well, <laughs> do you know, and that's the thing. Although Sydney seemed to be this proper like fusion of lots of different people from lots of different places, it did seem to be more of a fusion where Melbourne seemed to have quite distinct districts in my Mm. mind. I mean, you know, Mm. I am a geographer at heart. That that was my first discipline. And I found that in in my head, I was sort of, you know, forging these almost, you know, areas of demarcation between different people and different... But they also brought with them, the Greeks brought with them, the Italians brought with them some amazing influences. Did you feel that growing up or was that not something you were exposed to? No, I did. It was was very clear that um, because I grew up in the 50s, it was very uh, Anglo-Saxon, you know, classic British sort of cuisine and lifestyle. And then once the the Italians and the Greeks arrived, it, it was unbelievable that it just exploded and you know, I had my first taste of salami when I was 12 because I went to ballet with a German girl and I had no idea that such an exotic, amazing tasting thing could be in the exist. And I it really exploded my mind that there's so many flavours out there I had never even tasted and tried and I've just been passionate about flavour ever since. And because I, of the salami? I think it was the salami. <laughs> Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) It was garlic. See, we didn't grow up eating a lot of garlic. And when the European migrants came to Australia, suddenly we understood what garlic was all about. I mean, maybe not suddenly, but, yeah, it it was just not food that we were familiar with. And so, you know, even pizza was not that common in my youth. Yeah, and do you know what, actually? In in preparation for today's show, I was looking at some statistics around – vegetables and and consumption of vegetables and this one really shocked me that um, currently more than a third of the vegetables eaten by children are highly processed resulting in the situation where 17% of children's vegetables come from pizza 
and baked beans (laughs) and so for you to say that you know you hadn't even seen a pizza it really shows how different the kind of environment is doesn't it it does and uh, frankly Jenny a lot of mothers come to me for classes wanting ways to present vegetables that will be acceptable to kids and how do you add the flavor and the texture that they'll accept and it's a real challenge and a lot of the mothers want to eat a particular way perhaps more plant-based more healthy towards that end of the scale but the rest of the family are clamoring for bland uh, high carb processed food and it's a real struggle in families because the mothers end up cooking more than one meal which is a bit crazy so yeah, it's interesting. How do you, that, how do you get around it? It's a yeah. challenge. Uh, you mentioned, uh, in fact, when we've been at your in, in your the grounds of your house, when we've been down <laughs> to your you, you can't even call it a veggie patch, can you? Because it, it is particularly large for a veggie patch, and it's a wonderful place to be. If anybody doesn't believe that you can be sort of in a meditative state when you meditative state whilst you're in and around real vegetables I mean maybe that's just me but I really feel very calm when I'm there it's a wonderful place to be but I think from my time working in schools with children and nutrition I found that those that have access to an allotment generally have a much wider palate Um, when I've brought out things like beetroot for example however you say it some people say beetroot some people say beetroot (laughs) but the idea is that if you've been exposed to it growing it you do not kind of shy away from the fact that these very gnarly looking sphere-like objects come out of the earth covered in earth mud muck they don't look particularly appealing but don't they taste wonderful and so many children probably wouldn't even have access to an allotment let alone know what beach you taste like or how to consume it well, look, there's a couple of things there. Yes, being getting your hands dirty and getting in the soil can actually improve immunity and that's something a lot of kids miss out on. Um, seeing things grow gets their interest and if the parents can find a way to involve them and I, I really think that you don't need a veg garden to do that and, I, you know, I was thinking the other day, I actually experimented growing carrots in tubs this year just to see how they grew. And they're fantastic because the tubs I picked were quite large. They're probably a 10-litre tub. And it gives the carrots room to grow long roots rather than sort of shallow soil. And you can control the bugs, you can control the slugs, and you could have it on your terrace. So you could just out your back door, get the kids to plant a few carrot seeds and watch them grow and, you know, pick them after some months of growing and the kids can say oh my god I I did that and was just sitting at my back door it doesn't have to be an elaborate allotment arrangement to be doing things like that and herbs and all those lettuces and things what time of year would you recommend people do that with their children um it my busiest time is sort of April May planting now if you have a greenhouse you can of course get seedlings growing earlier but not everyone has that either but you can go to your local um garden centre and buy seedlings of lettuces and and carrots and all those veg and just put them into pots around near your back door and just get them interested in where food comes from. Absolutely I couldn't agree more. It's it's a really interesting um, perspective on things. Uh, One of the the other statistics that I found quite shocking when I was uh, preparing for today uh, was that only 1.2% of food advertising budget is spent on vegetables you know we don't see adverts do we for what really comes from the ground and yet how easy is it to like you say just get a big tub at the right time of year pop in some seeds from growing carrots what else would you recommend that people could grow at home 
Well, I think lettuce are an easy win mm-hmm. because they are quick to germinate and you can just get the cut and come again one. So you cut them off, have them for dinner that night and leave them for another for a week or two and they'll continue to grow. Wow. Always easy. Um, if they like herbs like basil and parsley, you can just get that going in the spring and it'll be lovely for the summer. Um, spring is a great time to start, but you can grow, you can start planting things for the winter now. So while the earth is still a little bit warmish, it's cooling off Ish. rapidly, <laughs> <laughs> but um, we've had a very mild September. So it's a good time. You could throw radishes in there, a quick win as well, if kids like radishes. I'm not sure that'd be their favourite though. I think they're wonderful. You know, the crunch is exciting. Maybe the heat isn't so exciting. Um, so Jen, tell us a little bit about um, how you got to where you are today. So what is your what is your reason or why are you so um, in touch with the earth and growing things and gardening and then that connection with the enjoyment that we get from things that we've grown ourselves? I think I used gardening as a, as a therapy in my 30s. Uh, I think we all sort of in our 20s are trying to figure out where we're going and then I figured out that if I, I, I needed something other than work to keep me amused and interested on the weekends and I wasn't really the sort of person that rushed out having an amazing social life and I, I needed something that kept me occupied and involved and gardening seemed to be a really easy win and my grandfather was a fantastic gardener and I used to love watching what he did um I think that I've always loved just really tasty food and so I've always my husband calls me a feeder Jenny (laughs) feed people (laughs) I've been accused of that yeah yeah it's not a bad thing I always wanted to feed myself great tasting food and other people. So any chance I could get to cook dinner for people. And my mother was actually um, a terrible cook as well. I know lots of people might say this, that, you know, I I ended up cooking because my mother was terrible or my family were terrible cooks (laughs) and I just took over. And my mum went back to work when I was 12, so I took over getting the dinner ready. So I got into – I actually started doing roast dinners at about 12, 13 and – they're really That's easy young. to do for kids, you know. They mm. can prep them and they take an hour or so to cook but just stick it in the oven. And I think my interest in food then grew because, as I was saying, I used to go to cooking schools to relax and I I was exposed to just so many interesting ways to cook and um, ingredients and in an environment that I guess made me feel really relaxed. So... I wanted to bring that back and after I left corporate life, I, I didn't want to go back doing consulting or anything like that and I thought, what can I do? How can I share this with people? I'm just – and I guess the other key factor was I was a vegan for 15 years, Jenny, when it was not trendy. Nobody knew what it was all about. I was in my late 20s, 30s. There were none of the products you can buy now. So I do get – can I rant about processed vegan food for, go for one it. Go second? Go for it, Jen. This is the platform to do so. <laughs> I, I do despair that people think that it's healthy to go and eat vegan food that is pre-prepared burgers and whatever you can buy now. Okay, tofu, yes, I, go and buy some tofu because who's going to make their own tofu? But a lot of it is just replicating traditional processed food and veganizing it, and I'm not convinced that's very healthy. When I was a vegan back in the day, you would had none of that and you had to cook from scratch and I actually learned how to be a healthy vegan cooking from scratch and I thought that was something I could share with people as well, how to get the B12, how to get the right combinations of food and I also used to eat quite a bit of fermented food and miso and things before 
most people knew what that was and I thought that was something worth sharing, especially for younger women or younger people who decide they're going to be a vegan and don't have a lot of knowledge and understanding. But it does require some dedication. It does. If you're going to live on processed food, why... I'm not convinced that that's a good decision. And Jen, one of the things I've learned from you, and we'll discuss that uh, in just a moment when we come back, is about celebrating vegetables, um, using vegetables as the primary ingredient in a dish rather than thinking meat and or protein and. You think of vegetables first. So let's have a little chat about that after the break. Okay. Windsor. Windsor. Ascot. Ascot. Maidenhead. Maidenhead. You can never know what it's like Your blood like when a fuse is just like ice And there's a cold and lonely light that shines from you You wind up like the wreck you hide behind that mask you use And did you think this fool could never win? Well look at me, I'm coming back again I got a taste of love and a simple way And if you need to know why I'm still standing You just fade away Don't you know I'm still standing Better than I ever did Looking like a true survivor Feeling like a little kid
and that was Elton John. I'm still standing. That was uh, your choice, Jen, wasn't it? It was. It always gets me up and about the kitchen. It did. You were. Well, you were up and ab- almost up and about <laughs> just then. Um, so we said our, uh, before the break, we said we were going to have a little chat about celebrating vegetables. And actually, Jen, you know, you and I have worked together before. Um, we collaborated on a few uh, cookery workshops. And one of the things as I watch you go about your kitchen and, and watch the way you do things is perhaps the order of the, the way in which you do things so I've always thought and, and my way of I, again probably due, due to my upbringing is that you sort of you know when you're thinking about a meal even the way we name meals and if you think of sort of I don't know bangers and mash or spaghetti bolognese we're, we're naming this sort of protein source right at the very head the top you know whereas the way in which you propose recipes is much more well it's poetic I think but it's also the fact that you celebrate vegetables can you tell us a little bit more about like when your thinking changed around that because I also think that your connection with what you grow probably influences that am I right I've always been more towards the veg end of town but I you know I want a caveat is I live with a carnivore so um I decided that most of us as you say think oh got a roast chicken what'll I have with it I've got a piece of beef what'll I have with it I've got some fish what'll I have with it change that turn it on its head and say what am I going to do with these carrots and what am I going to do with these aubergines and these peppers and these onions and what could I put with that well fish might go really well with a sort of ratatouille or um you know it I, I end up, yes, I have chicken and fish and some beef in my fridge and my freezer, but I have so many more vegetables in my crisper and my fridge and I start with how am I going to use those veg or, you know, whatever I'm growing down in the veg garden, how am I going to use these? And, oh, I think chicken would go with that. Yeah, great. And Love I just that. think it changes the way you think. It makes the veg the hero of the meal and you eat more vegetables as a consequence because you you, I always add the flavour to the veg, not all all the flavour going into the meat, and that's what we traditionally do. Yeah, I, it's wonderful actually. And it, when you say that, it reminds me um, of when we were younger. Uh, we used to have a quite a regular takeaway um, when I was growing up with my parents. I loved. Indian food I loved an Indian takeaway and and quite often I would order completely vegetarian even though I'm not but completely vegetarian meals and and my dad would say to me like Jen I just don't get it you know you love you love your meat so why are you ordering vegetarian food and I said well because of all of the food that I eat you know Indian food it celebrates vegetables you cannot if you have three different vegetarian curries they all taste distinctly different whereas I wouldn't say the same I remember when I first went to university and tried vegetarianism for a period of time I honestly felt like every single meal tasted the same Mm. it just seemed to be some sort of bechamel type sauce that it was being served with to cover probably what was overcooked vegetables because that's the other thing we do right we we overcook vegetables so celebrating vegetables um i know that you're a big fan of getting the sort of the taste profile right and we've talked about this sort of salt and sugar and fat combination so tell us a little bit more it is called let's do lunch this show so let's whet <laughs> a few appetites shall we tell us a little bit more about some of the combinations that you used for example yesterday we were shopping together uh, and you picked up some balsamic vinegar I know you love balsamic vinegar and that's one of the flavors that you can taste in for example the figs that you do maybe start with the figs but I know the peppers that you do with harissa are wonderful so let's whet a few appetites well, I think if anyone understands the the trinity of salt, 
and sugar and acid, then you start to understand how to make food taste amazing. So yes, you can add spice to that. Um, You can add sweet. The other thing I always say to people who come to my classes is sugar is a flavour enhancer and so is salt. Yeah. And I'm not advocating putting sugar in your food left, right and centre because I'm really not. I think sugar is the biggest issue we have. We'll talk about that another time, Jenny. But how do you combine those flavours to make food taste amazing? And once you start to understand that if you always have a bit of acid in your food, whether it's lemon juice or balsamic vinegar, any of those types of things, the food will always pop more Mm. than without it. Um, I always suggest adding salt while you're making the dish. Okay. I don't put salt on at the end. And why is that, Jen? Because it enhances all of the other flavours you add. If you put salt on at the end, you just make things taste salty, which is fine if you love really salty food, but it doesn't help the flavour of the food. So start by adding it to the flavour profile of whatever you're making and then taste it as you go. And sure, add salt at the end if you really need to, but if you've done a proper job, you don't need to. And often if you think about... um, Asian food, if you think about Middle Eastern food, they do the whole sweet, sour, savoury combo. Mm. And I have to say that the Middle Eastern combination of flavours is just as appealing to me as the more traditional Italian or, you know, French or whatever because they get that so well. You know, they use the spice and the sweetness of fruit and all sorts of things in their food and salt And it just tastes incredible. And, you know, one of my most popular classes is a Moroccan tagine and you don't need fancy equipment to do that. But it's got all those things in it. And I even add balsamic vinegar and all sorts of spices and herbs. So if you can understand that or just follow a recipe and be a little bit bolder. Another thing, Jenny, that drives me nuts about most recipes, they never add enough garlic. So they'll say two cloves and you say, oh. You're joking. <laughs> well, way and more. what size cloves would that be as well? So now the supermarkets are selling much bigger, fatter cloves of garlic, and I always buy the big, fat ones. And if the recipe says to go for three and just try it and see, is maybe there, four. I was going to say, is there such a thing as too much garlic? Well, not in my book, but <laughs> I can understand not everyone loves it. But just be bolder. So if it says a teaspoon of something, go for two and see how it tastes. You might just find that it actually tastes even better. A lot of recipes are written, especially in the UK, for a much um, blander profile because people aren't as used to spice. They don't necessarily like a lot of spice. But just add a little bit more each time and you'll start to get more used to it and then you'll think it's great. It's interesting you say that. I was on a... um a judging panel the other day so it was the free from food awards uh, christmas food and it was party food so the category that i was involved in so in theory that should have been the most flavorsome food and for me it was quite flavorsome but there was a guy on the panel who told me um this is fascinating i still didn't ask actually why he knew this but he knew that he was in the bottom 23 percent um of tasters <laughs> Which I, 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 how do you know these things? But anyway, he finds it really difficult to taste. So he needs a lot of flavour. So a lot of, yes, salt and sugar and fat and everything. Um, but particularly things like heat and spice. Um, there was something that we were tasting and the other people on the panel and I were like, whoa, that is like a proper hit. And we could, there was something that was too strong in it, but he couldn't taste that at all, which I thought was fascinating that he was on a judging panel. 
But as someone that writes recipes for a living and, and yourself sharing recipes for a living, you know, it's actually really important to understand that some people need an absolute shed load of flavor in their food and and some people don't so actually leaving people with the option to and I love what you're saying there have a bit more just add a bit more just try a bit more well there's also um genetic differences uh so I the classic one is coriander some people absolutely love it and other people cannot stand it and the people who cannot stand it are genetically programmed that they it tastes like soap Mm -hmm. and they'll never like it um that's just the luck of the draw. But I, I do think that it's interesting that he's on the taste panel because he's a good sort of indicator, isn't he? Yeah, and if not you every- want a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am kind of taste, yeah. then he's your, one, he's your judge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was good. It was interesting, though, to find out, you know, that I, you, you know, it's good to be reminded of that, that people have different yeah. taste backgrounds and different taste profiles. The other thing is fat. We haven't really talked about that. Yeah, important. F- yes, fat has been the villain and is now less of a villain, but it also carries a lot of flavour. And, in fact, in meat, the fat is... the. Fat carries a lot of flavour and you go for really lean cuts, you lose flavour. So you need to think about that and maybe add it other ways. Yep. But um, I use a lot of olive oil, probably more than I should. <laughs> <laughs> Confessions of a... <laughs> ah, but it just makes food so wonderful, especially baking vegetables. And, mm. and uh, you know, we were talking earlier about um, Brussels sprouts at Christmas time. Yes. Don't boil Brussels sprouts. Bake them with olive oil and salt and pepper. You said like like you had real care and concern for the Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Please don't boil us. No, people people just um, hate them so much. I feel sorry for them. They are so sweet when you bake them. You just cut them in half and bake them for 20 minutes or so. Do you know what? You make a really good point there. So we've been talking a lot today about the, the, the field to, to fork journey and we've been talking about it in relation to not just obviously where our food comes from, but understanding that journey, helping people to want to eat more. And actually Sam made the point, Sam's here in the studio today as well, about Brussels sprouts being so very seasonal that you really, people don't necessarily always connect the fact that we have them at Christmas. And the reason we have them at Christmas is because that's when they're at their best, right? So again, thinking about how you uh, celebrate something that people think they don't love, well, there's different ways to cook it. And again, I mean, I remember broccoli, you know, when I was uh, bringing, well, not that I'm not bringing my my two children up now and it's not just me of course there's many of us village to raise a child and all that but I'm sure my husband plays his part but the two of us together have had issues at times you know with thinking right we must give our children this or that broccoli of course being one of the most prominent ones that you keep on getting told is a great food for children but what if they go off broccoli what have you mm. given it to them too many times aha we'll bake it mm. and I remember that uh, one of my first recipe books sheep pan cooking I realized that if you actually bake vegetables as part of a dish first of all they have a different flavor profile and then if you put other things in the dish as well and that's certainly something you advocate isn't it Jam? Yes I, I think that there's pretty much very few vegetables you can't bake I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head but I think that it's also the way you cut them I know this is a little bit chefy and techy go for it I love a bit of techy um, stuff I'm, I really do, when I'm doing, especially um, my classes face-to-face or online, I really do talk a lot about how to cut the veg and in what sizes because in the end you've got to think 
start with the end in mind. How do you want that dish to look? How are you going to put it together and make it look really appetising, especially if it's very veg-focused? And the way you cut the veg can impact on how long it takes to cook, how much it caramelises and the texture in your mouth when you eat it. So, you know, you can get cauliflower, for instance, and bake it and you can cut it into the traditional florets and some will get a bit crispy on the edges. But if you cut it in slices, like big steaks, it goes much softer and doesn't burn on the edges as much and you can add all sorts of curry-like flavours or balsamic vinegary things or my favourite is pomegranate molasses or harissa. There's just so many ways you can brush it with oil and some flavour and it gets much sweeter. And I think a lot of vegetables baked go sweeter than we're used to and just boiling them doesn't really do them justice. Just talking through that cauliflower, she <laughs> says with personal interest in mind, yes. how thick would you cut the... They're cauliflower steaks, aren't they? They're yes. called, which I was finding quite funny. It's a <laughs> two centimetre thick. So okay, two it'll... centimetres thick. And then you're brushing them with olive oil and you're putting something like harissa or pomegranate molasses or both on there no i wouldn't mix those okay i would one or the other okay with a little bit of and once again going back to the salt and the sweet and the savory and the sour yeah so if it's with harissa for instance which is uh, a paste and it has quite a spicy profile but it has other things in it like cumin and other the the rose harissa or the non-rose doesn't matter either are good rose is particularly soft and nice but Mm -hmm. doesn't matter Um, Then I'd add a little bit of honey or maple syrup or slight sweetness that enhances all those flavours. Without it, for me, it's a little bit bitter. Mm -hmm. And maybe some people have tried harissa without a little bit of honey and thought it was too bitter. Just try a teaspoon of honey in there. So, yeah, there's lots of tricks. It's about putting those things together, putting those combinations together. And that's what I love. Your peppers, talk us through those, the harissa peppers that you make. Those are wonderful. That is one of the easiest and most flavoursome things you can do where you just cut up whatever peppers you've got and they can be red, yellow, whatever, not green, but yellow, red, orange. Cut them into strips of a couple of centimetres and um, coat them in an oily harissa, bit of acid from red wine vinegar or even apple cider vinegar, some honey and, you know, some other herbs like a bit of cumin or cinnamon or any of those types of things and just throw them on a tray and let them bake in the oven and then you can have them with grains, you can have them with chicken or fish. It's fantastic. And that's, that's something you've done with um, couscous before? Yes. Rice, quinoa? Any grain. Yeah. You can make it gluten and um, vegan and dairy-free and all of those things if you wish to. But also really nice with, have you done it with cheese before, like feta or something? Or I haven't. No? I haven't put feta with it, but... Why not? We're getting going here, aren't we? This is like, we just need a kitchen here, Sam, if that's okay. I <laughs> we'll was, just cook up in the kitchen. I think I've always tried to make it a bit vegan. So I actually, um, to add protein, I'd probably put um, a tin of chickpeas in there with it or cut up tofu, especially for people who don't like tofu. Cover tofu with lots of flavour and it's, it's really much nicer. <laughs> that's the absolute key, isn't it? Oh, that's brilliant, yeah. Look, um, we're going to take another break. Um, but after that, I'd like to talk about... Um, what is in season right now, um, but also why we should bother making growing our own. And if we don't grow our own, how else we can engage with 
seasonal local produce you know where can we go what where can we get it etc okay right so um let's uh, have another track and then we will be back with you um in just a moment across the thames valley one more time across the thames valley this this is river radio well now for some pop music Moments of silence. I see your two sides, your inner peace, your inner violence. And I'm scared of what I see. Cause you're just like me. Falling angels love to sing. All their memories, broken dreams, and broken wings. I'm so scared of what I hear Your songs fall out of me like tears What more can I do? No one ever sees this side of you When you ask me to leave and I fall to my knees and I'm begging 
you, Jack, for that. Uh, it's taking me back to Pub in the Park. That was good fun. I managed to get to listen to his whole set live. We were just having a chat about that earlier. It was very romantic, except my husband wasn't with me. Hey-ho. Um, I just had a little moment, Jack and I, <laughs> up in the park. So we've got Jen Roach here uh, with us. Uh, Fearless in the Kitchen is her brand. She runs a cookery school in Berkshire, and we're talking about the journey that food makes from field to fork. And the reason we're talking about that is because, Jen, let's call you an expert on that, right? Because Jen not only grows her own, but cooks her own. And I think there are many of us that would love to do that. I mean, you talked about your passion about food and about the food that nourishes us and, and being called a feeder guilty myself and certainly I love the idea of growing my own food but I do not do it and it's a bit of a joke in my household because I can't even keep a house plant alive so how I would keep vegetables growing and when you talked about lettuces and taking the top off them allowing the lettuce to regrow I was thinking oh I'd forget about that I'd move on and then think I had to buy a new one or something so it's wonderful that you're with us today and sharing your experiences we've been talking Jen about seasonality and how important that is and actually from a nutritional perspective that's been my bag as nutritionist really important things are at their most nutritious when they are in season now we were going to talk about what is in season right now so what have you got in your garden in Berkshire right now well I've got quite a lot because we've had such a mild September that things are still growing that um, may have in the past been hit and hit by cold weather and frost or you know at least just started to degrade and have less sunshine so I still have tomatoes growing in the greenhouse, sure, but they're still ripening. They were very slow to get started because it wasn't as warm earlier on and now they're just going crazy. But out in the veg garden, the courgettes are still going strong, so I still have lots of courgettes, so I'm thinking 49 ways to do those. <laughs> um, I think that my lettuces are doing pretty well. Um, I haven't checked them for slugs recently, but they seem to be okay. And um, my cucumber in the greenhouse just keeps throwing out cucumbers and they are so when you grow them yourself and that's another one you could do on your terrace because I have it in a pot that is I don't know you know five litre pot Mm -hmm. and it just keeps growing growing it must like to have constrained roots or something as long as you keep it watered and they're so sweet I was going to say the taste is so different isn't it if you ask a random person on the street do you like cucumber we'll have a fairly nothing response to that it'll be well they're all right or you know nice in a sandwich or whatever but Um, it doesn't have great flavor unless you are getting it just picked right you know in season there's a massive difference isn't there in the flavor profile of the things that you've grown yourself they can be a little bit bitter and some people have a regurgitation problem with cucumber and i'm not sure why that is there must be some sulfur or something in there who knows but the ones i grow don't taste as bitter as it, the ones I buy commercially. Um, yeah, so I haven't got a lot growing because I've pulled a lot out and I'm going to sort of actually take most things out this year and start again and you have to rotate. This is all getting a bit Monty, Don and technical. <laughs> yeah, heart out. You, you're not meant to grow the same thing in the same spot, so you have to rotate your veg garden around. But um, 
I'm just thinking, I also grow edible flowers and I grow lots of herbs and the herbs are still going incredibly. I've got so much parsley and the basil's still going and basil usually doesn't like it when it cools down but it's still mild so that's doing really well and I made four jars of basil pesto the other day. And could you give me one of those? Oh, I should have brought that with me, shouldn't I? Sorry, <laughs> Jenny. But you can you can freeze pesto. So yes, if exactly. you grow a lot and you yeah. make a lot of pesto, just freeze some of it. Okay, so here's a question for you. What would you say uh, are the biggest challenges for you growing your own vegetables and fruits at home? Um, the weather is, is something you have to really keep an eye on. So you can't control it, so no. you just have to watch it, observe it. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to think about things like slugs, they, and they've been really bad this year because it's been so wet earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, do you want to go out there spraying? No, I don't. I do completely organically. I don't add or spray or do anything. So I figure they're, they're due some of it, and mm. as long as I get some. But when they completely decimated my cauliflower and cabbage patch, and it was the cauliflower and cabbage became slimy with sl- uh, slugs. It was just oh, horrible. Oh, gosh. So that really annoyed me. So it is is a bit of a heartbreaking experience sometimes. If you, tr- I wouldn't want to do it commercially. Oh, my God. Mm. I, think, I think what it really shows you is it's quite hard work and it makes you appreciate what you do grow and what you can eat and mm-hmm. you realise how much of what's on those supermarket shelves is, is back-breaking labour and the effort to get the quantities to us in those shelves and how much sorry how much we waste yep. is just just devastating and growing it your own you really want to use it you know you to spend all that time loving and caring for those carrots or those lettuce or those courgettes or runner beans i've got lots of runner beans i forgot those earlier they're still going strong you grow those and you nurture them and you water them and you look after them you don't want to waste them so you feel sort of on a bound to cook them in a really nice way and revere them and appreciate them. It's so true that, isn't it, actually? Just um, recently, I know you're aware that I've been getting a, a box um, of vegetables and fruits delivered. It, it comes in the night, which is a lovely gift to wake up to in the morning. It used to be milk on the doorstep. That wasn't something that pleased me as someone that doesn't really like milk. But this gift is wonderful. So it comes through in the middle of the night and um, the dog's not too happy about having vegetables delivered in the middle of the night, but he'll get over it. But it's all of the vegetables and fruit that wouldn't be suited to a supermarket i.e they're too small or there were too many of them or this year this year this week we had kale in there and the idea was that the outside of the kale grows and the um and needs to be removed so that the kale continues to grow but if you just get rid of those leaves because there isn't a demand at the moment for kale for whatever reason so i just got Two great big um, baking sheets, put the oven on low, um, washed them, you know, took out the nasty kind of wooden stem bit, threw them onto the baking sheet, a little bit of olive oil massaged into the leaves and then got them nice and crispy and actually then just put that on top of some pasta uh, and actually on top of some pea pasta, which was also made with British peas. So to your point about things that are much more local, uh, locally grown or at least grown in, in you know, uh, the UK, then there are that many more products available, aren't there? So for people that don't necessarily have um, the space, we've talked about you can grow your own herbs being an obvious choice, carrots in a big tub, perhaps on a patio or even if you've got like a sort of a balcony or somewhere that's nice and sunny. 
uh, cucumbers being an option. Any other advice for anybody that wants to grow their own stuff? I think start with the things you like. Okay, good good advice. Don't grow kale if you can't stand it. Don't <laughs> grow parsnips if you abhor them. You know, don't feel that if you're going to have a little veggie patch that you have to be all terribly religious about it and grow a bit of everything. Just pick the things you really like to eat. It's yeah, quite simple. That's really good advice. And what if people don't have the inclination but they really do want to eat locally, eat seasonally um, and, you know, make the most of celebrating vegetables and the taste of vegetables what advice would you give those people in terms of getting hold of the vegetables but also in terms of what to do with them look this is a vexed one for me because I like you get a box uh, every Monday uh, from Abel and Cole and I want to give them a shout out because all through lockdown they never failed me brilliant and people say oh it's too expensive Mm. well don't get huge amounts just get a small box and then make use of it don't waste it um sure you know it forces you to think what am I going to do with that so if you're working ridiculous hours and don't have time to cook you you would probably not necessarily like that sort of thing because it's sitting there looking at you and you think I've spent that money on those veg and I haven't used them so that is one way is to have seasonal fresh organic fruit and veg from someone like Riverford or Abel and Cole or the odd box people or whatever you want. Um, I think there's been a bit of a shift too to pre-prepared meals that are delivered as recipes. Yeah. Um, I won't give all the shout-outs yeah. to all the names of those companies, but I've had a lot of people say to me that's made them be more interesting about the way they cook vegetables and grains and and fish and things because they get two or three recipes for the week in a box with all the ingredients Mm. and then they put that together because it's done for them it's weighed out it's measured and they've started to be more experimental and actually you know come to one of my classes if you want some ideas but also that's not a bad idea if you're really busy working person and you don't have a lot of time and it's just delivered ready to go yeah that's a good point actually but just going back to the boxes I know one of the things that both you and I engage in and yes we are in the world of food but still busy um is uh you're cooking in batches so even if it's just I mean I got given a whole load of Mediterranean style vegetables so courgettes aubergines onions and peppers I just roasted that all off in a little bit of olive oil and then just and salt and then just put those into bags in the freezer and then the other night when I had an, an extra uh, teenage mouth to feed a hungry one um, I popped that into a pasta sauce you know just to kind of boost the vegetable content and I felt quite good about that but it's things like that isn't it it is and I think some people say to me they don't have a lot of freezer space yeah so another thing to get around that is make a huge batch and then use it in different ways so um, sometimes I'll make a courgette ratatouille type thing and have it with you know a a chicken or fish or something Mm -hmm. but then you can whiz it up and puree it and put it through a pasta yeah or you could um sit something in it and make it like a sauce that you bake it in yeah so don't always think of making a veg dish and it's on the side or it's on top of pasta yeah maybe cook things in it and um great advice often i have a lot of stuff sitting in the fridge two or three days and Mm. it'll be fine there's no meat in there it's not going to go off easily that's actually a really key thing and a key point is that 
because if you don't have your animal-based products in there, it doesn't go off as quickly. It's less likely to harm you when you do eat it a little bit later. Right, Jen, we are almost at the top of the hour, so I would love to ask you, um, what can people do if they want to find out more about your wonderful online classes? What are you running at the moment and where do they go to find out more? Well, I have a website, fearlessinthekitchen.co.uk. I have an Instagram and Facebook page. I run classes at least once a week, sometimes twice. Um, You can just go onto my website and look at all the dates and book um, through PayPal or just contact me. I find at the moment the really popular ones are the lunches and breakfasts, Jenny, because I think people just get really bored and uninspired and they're on the run or they're working from home or they're out the door. So I do real prep ahead breakfasts and lunches and I've been having a lot of success with that. People love it. And I'm doing um, Meze class in a few weeks Mm. and I've got a Moroccan class and um, what else am I doing? Lots of different things. Uh, Is it this Saturday you're doing a Strictly Tacos? Oh, I am. Yes, on the 9th. On the Um, 9th. I've decided to move the classes till 5.30 to 6.30 so you can make tacos or make your dinner. The other classes I've moved earlier to. Get together with the family, make dinner and then sit and watch Strictly. Jen, thank you very much for all of that information today. You've inspired me. I will be going and in search of some lunch, some <laughs> vegetables in my fridge to celebrate <laughs> for my lunch today before jumping on a train. Um, uh, if you've enjoyed today's show, and hopefully you have, we're going to be back for more. And next week I have a food photographer and videographer coming in to speak with me. So this podcast is all about food and nutrition and I'll be inviting people from various different parts of the industry and as diverse as they are we will be covering all sorts of topics um, but hopefully be of real interest to you. If you want to listen to this again it's at river.radio and if you want to get in touch with me or in fact you can download it you can go to Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can download this and listen to it again in full in case you missed anything uh, particularly the bits about you know the uh, flavor profiles which I think is really really key to celebrating veg um, but also if you want to get in touch with me it's jenny at riverradio.com no .co.uk no just river radio there we go you see I am learning and thank you everyone for bearing with me today um, I hope you find this really interesting and, and like I say there'll be plenty more to come Food's glorious Food's-